All right, welcome ladies and gentlemen. My name is Tawfiq Haddad. I'm the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's East Jerusalem uh, uh, organization known as the Kenyan Institute. Uh, today's event uh, webinar is uh, the roots of Lebanon's financial crisis, where we'll discuss Dr. Hisham Safiyuddin's Banking on the State. Today's event is co-sponsored with the Educational Bookshop in East Jerusalem. Uh, today's event is also taking place from East Jerusalem, and we have more than 150 people signed up across the world for this event, so we're very excited for that. Check out our website, cbrl.ac.uk, where we have uh, as all of our recordings are uploaded there. Last week, we had a good event on uh, China's role in the Middle East, and coming up on the 26th of August, we will have an event on Palestinian theater in the West Bank with uh, Dr. Gabrielle Varghese and Kirsten Flave. Today's event is uh, with Dr. Hisham Safiyuddin. Dr. Hisham Safiyuddin is a lecturer in the history of modern, modern Middle East at King's College London. He's the author as, of the book, as I noted, uh, Banking on the State, the Financial Foundations of Lebanon, which came out from Stanford University Press uh, just last year. He's currently working on a book on Mahdi Amil, the uh, Lebanese Marxist, uh, a book entitled Mahdi Amil, Arab Marxist and National Liberation, Selected Writings. If I'm not mistaken, that's the first English language translation of Mahdi Amil's work. Uh, and this current book, which we'll be discussing today, Banking on the State, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the first studies that is, uh, has been conducted on central banking in the Middle East. So given everything that has been taking place in the Middle East, and excuse me, in Lebanon in particular, every, I'm sure we have many uh, people in our audience today who uh, have been, uh, who work on Lebanon, who have personal connections with Lebanon, who are very concerned with the situation in Lebanon, certainly after the recent explosions there. But certainly uh, the latest explosions, uh, everyone was very much aware of the fact that uh, the, they came in the context of a, a much larger financial crisis that was taking place in the country. And uh, we can think of somebody better to be able to shed light on the situation in Lebanon uh, than Dr. Safiyuddin, whose book attempts to do precisely that. Please well, allow me to welcome Dr. Hisham and uh, please take it away. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, first, I want to thank Dr. Tufi Haddad for inviting me for this event. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Maggie, who's been helping us with arrangements. Um, and I want to express my thanks to the Kenyon Institute and CBRL uh, for this invitation. Before I commence, I want to send a very brief message in Arabic to uh, people in Quds, uh, and I will translate. Tahiyati min Lebanon ila kull ahl al-Quds. Ana bisharifni inu kun hala maujud maakun abr al-Skype, wa btmana inu tadhar al-Quds athna hayati mishan yoman ma iju ahdar wa ahadar wa astama kaman al-muhadarat fil-Quds. Fatamniyati btahir al-Ajil wa I salute everybody in Jerusalem, particularly, and I send you my heartfelt uh, uh, solidarity in your struggle um, against occupation and to liberate Jerusalem so that one day I may be able to speak in Jerusalem in person uh, with or without COVID. With that brief uh, message, uh, what I'm going to do is 
I'm going to give you a very brief survey overview of the structural foundations uh, of Lebanese uh, financial system, in particular in relation to crises. Why is this a crisis-ridden system? So I'll do that uh, briefly, and I'll do it through what I will call the trinity of deficits. I'm going to talk about three types of deficits that Lebanon is suffering from, uh, and I will use uh, some graphs to help you hopefully uh, kind of digest some of this material. And once I do that, I will talk briefly about the situation today. So I'm going to link it to what's happening now. As you know, and as Tufik had mentioned, the financial crisis that the Lebanese have been suffering from, which kind of uh, broke out last fall, has been compounded by the outbreak of COVID. So that has caused further stress and further societal anguish among the Lebanese. And on top of that, we had the criminal explosion that happened in Beirut, which also has caused even, on top of killing many people, on top of people getting injured, also this has exacerbated the financial crisis because many people now who are trying to repair their homes, many people have lost their, uh, their homes entirely. Uh, so there's a, there's a, the crisis is underlying the current sense of despair or current sense of um, uh, 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 anxiety about the future, the financial crisis hasn't gone away. It's still there. It is still impacting what's happening. We can see that with the central bank governor, the audacity of the central bank governor who issued a decree after the explosion telling the banks, instructing the banks to uh, give loans to people to build their homes when simultaneously they can't give them their own money. So this is still, this saga is still playing on. So let me go very quickly over some of these um, uh, structural uh, weaknesses or structural characteristics of the Lebanese economy. And we're gonna then hopefully take it up from there. So some of the stuff you, some of you may know, but I think it's important for us to uh, understand them uh, collectively. The first of course is the uh, consistent uh, deficit in Lebanon's trade balance. So very quickly, Lebanon's, I'm, I'm using my cursor here to show you, Lebanon is a country that has been chronically facing a trade balance. So its imports are always greater than its exports. The, the, the gap is huge. And you see here, at least this is the most recent data from 2014 to 2019, you have a consistent trade deficit. So this is a country that does not produce. This is a country that consumes. And what it consumes is also coming from outside. It's not producing what it consumes. Now, this usually has always been the case since Lebanon's creation. This is not a, a, a new development. What is new in the last four to five years is what is called a deficit in the balance of payments. So we've always had a trade balance deficit, uh, which was uh, on its own is not a good thing, but at least if you had inflow of money to compensate, then that would be okay. And this was the case. So the balance of payments, this is the next slide, is the difference between the outflow and inflow of money. So on, in addition to trade, you have services, you have tourism. So even though you import more than you export, you make up for that by people coming in, spending money uh, for tourism. You make up for that by people depositing their money in the banks. So the, uh, by remittances, a big source of inflow of money in Lebanon is the uh, diaspora uh, uh, sending money to their families. So historically, we've always had, generally speaking, a balance of payments uh, 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 surplus. So even though the trade balance wasn't, wasn't uh, positive, 
you always had money coming in into Lebanon because there's banking secrecy in Lebanon, which was um, which something that attracted a lot of capital so people can hide their money uh, if they you know, don't want it to be taxed or if they uh, made their money through all sorts of um, illegal activities. Um, but also notice here, this is the, by the way, the financial crisis, this big long column that you see here, 2009, a lot of money came into Lebanon after the global financial crisis. So a lot of money um, uh, actually was pumped into the country and the deposits in Lebanon at some point were almost four times the GDP. It was uh, hardly overblown. And if you look, however, starting in 2011, which is when the uprisings start happening and particularly Syria, you start seeing outflow of money. So you start seeing capital flight. Uh, money is leaving Lebanon. And this is one of the beginnings of the destabilization of the banking sector. This is when the sector realizes it's unable as much to attract money into the country. Um, and you have now a, a balance of trade deficit and a balance of payments deficit. And we'll talk about the government deficit. So this trend here at the end is what causes a structural imbalance in the inflow and outflow of money. Um, let me move on to the second entity we have to think about. So we don't only think about the economy, we have to think about the government and what the government is doing. So where does the government spend its money? And the reason I'm bringing this up because if we talk about solutions and problems, a lot of focus is if you follow the Lebanese crisis, we have to fix the electricity. Even the IMF talks about that. This is the, elect the how much money subsidized, uh, power is subsidized, 10%. Compared to close to, and these numbers, by the way, have changed drastically in the last two years. I'm, I'm, I'm using these numbers to talk about trends. Don't worry about how accurate relatively they are, because also not all the stats are accurate. So we have a large chunk of expenditure going to the debt. So this is the third aspect of the Lebanese financial crisis today. Unlike historically, when the government barely borrowed money, after the civil war, when Rafik Hariri came to power, we had a trend of increased government borrowing under the pretext of the reconstruction after the war. But a lot of this money was, was either siphoned off through corrupt outsourced deals to the um, clientelist networks of the warlords, or it was highly siphoned off. Um, um, it was done in infrastructural projects like Solidaire, which really did not help Lebanon create a productive economy. It wasn't invested in uh, infrastructure that improved the ability of Lebanon to uh, en enhance its economy. So over time, with more and more borrowing, there was more and more government spending on interest rates and on paying the debt. So we had a big debt problem that was building up from the 90s. And we got until today when the debt became, as you've heard many of you, 155 to 170% of GDP. So. Um, 32 of this government spending here, when I'm using the, my cursor, are wages and benefits. So this is the class struggle that's happening in Lebanon. A lot of focus by the IMF, by the uh, Association of Banks, is about we have to cut down on public government. You know, this is something that many of you know about neoliberalism. It's always complaining about public wages. Well, guess what? these public wages are still not close to or not as much as or at least equal to how much debt is being paid to a minority of people who own the debt versus the wages that look after the welfare of tens of thousands of families. And even those wages, by the way, check this out. 
more than almost 60% of the wages are on the security apparatus of the state, the army and the internal security forces. So this is not all the brouhaha that was made out, uh, that was uh, created in Lebanon about teachers, you know, their wages. The teachers' education constitutes 17% of spending compared to 60% to the internal security forces and the army. So we have a government who's uh, wasting its debt by uh, basically paying off uh, contractors, uh, hefty sums, and siphoning a lot of this money to the pockets of the internal security forces. And this debt that we are going to maybe talk a little bit more about, part of it is in Lebanese pounds, part of it is in euro bonds, which is just dollars. And um, most of it, even the ones of the euro bonds, is held up by the banks. Um, and Never mind the slide. I'm going to. I'm trying to show you how much of the money is interest, the exorbitant interest rates that are being paid. When people call for debt repayment or debt restructuring, keep in mind a lot of these people have already made maybe some of the principal that they've invested in interest. But um, I want to um, show you a couple of more slides to discuss. Uh, I talked about the inflow and outflow of capital. This is a diagram that shows you when is there's a net outflow or inflow of money from Lebanon. And notice the negative outflow. This is in May 2006. This is around the war, uh, 2006 war. Uh, this is in uh, February 2005 when Hariri was killed. Um, and then you get the big blip, the biggest blip at the end. This is, by the way, September 17, a little bit after. I think this is around when Hariri was detained in Saudi Arabia. And then the huge blip in September. The point of this is to say that Lebanese capital, this hot capital, money in Lebanon doesn't stay here for the direct investment. It is really for very high rent-seeking money. So the Lebanese structure, the financial structure is extremely precarious. It is really dependent on political stability. It is also means it is prone to manipulation. If people want to create a crisis, they can, if they can conspire, and I'll see, show you why they can conspire, they can easily withdraw large amounts of money or inject large amounts of money. Um, and this is because of the, the, the structure of the deposits in the Lebanese banking system. So again, this is a sketch of the distribution of money in banks. When we talk about want people wanting their money back, guess what? Close to 2% of depositors, they basically, um, sorry, 60% of depositors have less than 2% of the money in the banks. So when we talk about uh, income distribution, wealth distribution in Lebanon, it's one of the most unequal in the world. And in this case, only 2%, sorry, 60% of depositors have only 2% of the deposits. Whereas less than 1%, this is our 1%, everybody has their 1% of the population, they have around 80% of deposits. So if we talk about a haircut, if we talk about um, who holds most of the debt, because the debt in Lebanon, it's local. So people put their money in the banks, the banks lend the government, and then the government wastes the money. That's the cycle that we are, we are, we are going through. In this case, it's less than 1% that own, and according to the director general who resigned recently in Lebanon of the Ministry of Finance, 
uh, almost, I think if I remember correctly, when I listened to him, around 900 individuals uh, almost control uh, a big chunk of the money. And the outflow, the capital flight is estimated to be around 17 billion in the last two to three years. Again, these are rough numbers I'm pulling off uh, from my head uh, from what I remember. But the point I'm trying to make is there's a high concentration, extremely high concentration of wealth. And this is also part of the problem because who is bearing the cost today? It's the people who need their money, the people who want to withdraw the money to spend it to live. And those people are getting their dollars in Lebanese pounds. Whereas people who can afford to uh, withhold uh, their money in the banks are betting on fixing the system. Um, and this is the last point I want uh, to make. Um, sorry, I'm just getting a screen sharing has stopped as the shared windows closed. Okay. Um, so what I'm trying to say in all of this is the following. We have a unbalanced economic structure that has always been the case and has always tried to save itself by remittances, by tourism, by shady capital coming in. This structure became untenable in the last four to five years. Part of the remittances is because there's, there are sanctions on the communities who live in West Africa and Latin America, people who used to work in the Gulf. We all know that the Gulf money is, is not what it used to be in the past. Uh, we also have other factors. Tourism is destroyed because of the encroachment on public, um, public uh, space by the government. There are now more competition in, Iraq, uh, sorry, in Greece and Turkey. So all of these factors that used to uh, cushion the unbalanced economic growth were, erod were eroding in the last uh, four to five years. And this is where we come to the straw that broke the camel's back. The moment this trust uh, collapsed because people were wanting their money after November 17, uh, there may be other geopolitical factors we can talk about it became completely untenable. The Ponzi scheme of lending the money and wasting the money uh, was exposed and you didn't have uh, a serious um, restructuring of the banking system. We can talk more about that. But these are the structural factors. These are the roots, basically, the economic uh, roots. Um, there's a bit of the, the politics of, of, of um, uh, the banking uh, community, so to speak, but we can talk about that. But again, this is in a nutshell, um, what is the kind of underlying roots um, that made this crisis so um, uh, national, on the national scale. You know, the fact that the entire banking sector stopped paying money, which is unprecedented in the case of Lebanon and I suspect in many other countries. So I'm happy to, to build on this and, and take up your questions. And if we want to discuss the contemporary situation, uh, I'm also happy to do that. Well, thank you, Hisham, for that presentation. Uh, very interesting. Um, uh, firstly, let me uh, allow me to actually invite uh, folks who are in the audience now to, if you have any questions to, for Dr. Hisham, to put them up on the question and answers uh, section of the Zoominar. I'll start with my own questions. Uh, a lot of your presentation today, Hisham, dealt with sort of what I would call, um, well, for lack of a better word, uh, more contemporary developments. Uh, I, I was expecting more roots. Can you be able to provide us a little bit more historical background to this? Be because uh, if I understand correctly, your book has worked, looked closely at the evolution of the central bank in Lebanon from its origins in the Ottoman time through the French mandate to the post 
the independence period till today. Now, I'm not going to ask you, obviously, to uh, you know recollect the entire history of that. But to what extent uh, can you give a little bit of some of the main points of the earlier period of uh, Lebanon's financial history from those earlier periods that contributed to the situation today? Yeah, so you've touched on a very important point, which is the relationship between the Lebanon Central Bank and the private banking sector. This is a very important relationship that continues to play out today. And it's a political and economic relationship. So historically, one of the Achilles heel of Lebanon's economy, which goes back to its foundation, is the relationship between the central bank and the private bankers. Initially, early on, this goes to colonial times when the French transformed the Ottoman uh, Imperial Bank into Banque de Suri de Liban. And this was a bank that was private bank, which was doing both commercial activity and acting as the bank of the state, which meant that the central bank in its origins, and you talked about central banking in the region. Um, I, there may be other studies than this one, by the way, but I think central banks are the nervous system of national economies. And we don't know enough, in my view, we haven't done enough research on the history of central banking in this region. There are some good studies in Arabic, uh, there are some studies by bankers, so we need to have a critical uh, uh, understanding of them. In the case of Lebanon, this bank, Banque du Sud de Liban, served French capital and provided a lot of faci facilitated the investment by French capital in the country. Upon independence, unlike Syria, where they created a national bank, the Lebanese did not create a national bank. They continued to rely on a private French bank to print their money and to set their monetary policy. When a bank was in the, uh, uh, when there was an attempt to create a bank, the bankers created a lobby, Association of Banks in Lebanon, one of the longest serving and strongest lobbies in Lebanon. For those who live in the United States, think of the NRA as an equivalent. So this lobby was created in the late 50s. And I, what the work I do is I look back at the creation of this, uh, this association, which was designed to prevent the establishment of a central bank because they were opposed to any regulation of banking. And when the money and credit law, which governs the financial uh, market in Lebanon was being drafted, the Association of Banks in Lebanon, headed by Pierre Iddi, who comes from a very wealthy family, uh, lobbied the government to hollow out the law from many provisions that would have better regulated the private banking sector. And it is this structure that was set up in the late 50s and the early 60s that uh, prevented, and it is very conservative law, prevented the central bank from implementing and creating a uh, stable environment that would have prevented these crises. And only after the intrabank crisis that happens in 66, we have major reforms that take place, the creation of the Banking uh, Control Commission. But even these reforms, were uh, rolled back in the 70s again. So uh, the, the bankers were very uh, powerful from all the way back then. This is not just about neoliberalism today. This is about a powerful, well-established banking lobby that managed to always prevent the central authority from creating a regulatory framework that would avoid complete, and one of them is the banking secrecy law that I talked about, um, there are many other things that have to do with the classification of banks. So, for example, 
they didn't want to classify banks as commercial versus investment, which would reduce the risk of certain types of financial uh, actions. And they were successful. A lot of their demands were accepted by the government back in the 50s and the 60s, early 60s. And the new law actually was, uh, did not include these provisions. So the story is the struggle between basically the attempt to create a, uh, a um, bureaucracy that is able to control and regulate the banks and this private institution and how it, it was successful all the way back then in preventing this from happening. And up until today, they continue to play this very, very powerful and negative role. Fascinating. It reminds me because sort of there tends to be a sort of we often tend to hear that back in the days in the 70s the Palestinians were the state within the state of Lebanon and that today Hezbollah is the state above the state in Lebanon. Uh, this private lobbying banking formation uh, it seems to exist as some sort of autonomous power that has been there throughout history that also has major influence and power over the state how would you characterize within, I mean, no, with no need to perhaps use that precise metaphor, allegory, so to speak, but is that, is that accurate that this is what we're talking about? Some sort of autonomous uh, set of interests around a, a banking lobby that basically uh, has pulls a lot of strings behind the, the, the curtains on the state of Lebanon too. Yeah, so I'll go back to the title of the book, which is, and it's of course, it's a pun, it's banking on the state. And the point here is to precisely say that these bankers, they have managed to create a narrative, a very hegemonic narrative within Lebanese public space that tried to portray their success as merely a function of market forces. And somehow this is about the lack of a state, the absence of state regulation. My argument is, as a matter of fact, they are highly dependent on the state to reproduce their power, but they are the ones in many instances who are pulling the cards. So it's not only, I wouldn't say they're just autonomous from the state. I would say they are almost the, um, the authorities that are controlling partly, partly the state. They have a stake, they have a big stake and they manage at least in the case of the economic policies. So they are a very powerful non-state actor who are dependent on the state because they lack, in my view, the robust um, uh, foundation for uh, growth outside of state uh, uh, concessions, that they have used the state, they have banked on the state for their power. And uh, up until recently, for the majority of the Lebanese population, uh, the banks were seen as the jewel crown, the crown jewel of the Lebanese economy as the, actually the pillar of the Lebanese stability. Uh, so much of what I was saying or what I'm saying is usually constrained to some leftists or people would dismiss you, right? Today is different. Today they, had, they have had to expose or come forward uh, in, public, in the public eye and become much more forceful because the political ruling class is in many instances failing to do this role in a proper manner and because of the crisis. So now most people, or at least the majority of the Lebanese, are well aware of the role of Jamaat al-Masarif. And this is a common now term used in Lebanon, which is Hezb al-Masarif, the party of the banks. So now the people think of them as a party. Um, and I've noticed somebody's asking maybe about their connection to the politicians. If I might quickly talk about that. 
um, or maybe maybe no no well, you can, we'll, we'll get to questions in a second what I, I was going to follow up on that because the natural question thereafter has to do with uh, you know the trope about Lebanon is this it's this confessional sectarian system that's outdated and, and certainly uh, you know there are big calls now to, to do away with it but how does the sectarian framework as understood uh, uh, mesh with this what you're talking about here sort of unity of, of banking interests? Yeah, this is a very important question because part of my work is precisely to say that there is a fetishization of sectarianism when we talk about Lebanon or the region today and partly because of, you know, I would call cultural imperialism and how we have internalized a lot of these uh, categories so we can only think in sectarian terms when we understand power in this region as if power is only tied to sectarianism. So in the case of the banking system, First of all, historically, when you go back to the formation of the Association of Banks, firstly, it was called, at least in English, Association of Banks in Lebanon. Um, it included, uh, it was a globe, it included the transnational capital. The division, the dividing line at the time was not sectarian. The dividing line was French versus Arabo American capital. So old capital did not, they did not start the association. They were connected to the Banque de Suri de Liban. It was American capital like Chase Manhattan Bank and local uh, Lebanese capital that was getting a lot of money from the Gulf. So my point is the divisions and the motivations and the logic of this powerful entity cannot be explained by sectarian uh, logic. Now, obviously, one can argue that a lot of this initial capital, uh, particularly uh, in Beirut, uh, you know, uh, if you want, you can look and see that a lot of it is Christian. But a lot of it was also Muslim coming in, inflowing, coming in uh, because of the Gulf, what was happening. Um, in the central bank, for example, the sectarian quota is there. It became much more rigid after. But the, the man who was the brain, you know, a godfather, so to speak, of the money and credit law was Armenian. Now, he couldn't, he couldn't be the head of the central bank at the time, maybe because he wasn't uh, Maronite. Or by the way, the first central bank governor also was Catholic wasn't a Maronite. It only became later on. This is in the 50s, well after the establishment of the power sharing arrangement. So the point here is to say, in my book, on purpose, you will only find any reference to sectarianism in the introduction. And the entire book doesn't have a certain reference because I am personally tired also of understanding our history simply through sectarian lens. These individuals, whether Christian or Muslim, their class identity, their ideological, uh, economic ideology, was a lot more important historically than uh, their sectarian affiliation. And this is what we need to focus on. And this is what we also need to keep in mind today when we talk about if we want to revolutionize the Lebanese political system, um, it's one thing to talk about ending sectarian representation, which is absolutely essential. But merely doing that and keeping on the whole economic neoliberal aspect of it is not necessarily gonna solve things you know, in a, in a blink of an eye. Uh, they're inter interconnected, there is a dialectical relationship, but the, the financial structure is the foundation, the underlying economic foundation on top of which you have the sectarian system. And it's, they feed off of each other. So it's a hidden, it's an in, almost invisible, or used to be, not today as, at least, an invisible dimension of Lebanese history. What I find fascinating is everybody knows Lebanon is a big bank. Everybody talks about banking historically, but compare the number of studies 
of the banking system, aside from technical economic studies, with histories of sectarianism or histories of wars. I, to me, it was like interesting that, I mean, I didn't know that it took 20 years for the Lebanese central bank to be established. After I, I came uh, across it by accident. Um, so this is how much of this history is, is not actually public or is not uh, available. And I think it will, it should lead us to change the way we think about Lebanese history and Lebanese politics as well. Well, thank you for that answer. I'll ask you one more question before going to the questions online and please uh, put your questions up on the question and answer button. Uh, but perhaps to play a bit of devil's advocate with you, of course, certainly the sectarian confessional nature of uh, Lebanon is perhaps overplayed, but it certainly has a social and political reality there. Uh, with that said, I, I certainly support your attempt to highlight other factors, both historical, institutional, and uh, interests aligned, so to speak, uh, that be, have explanatory value to the character of what's happening in Lebanon today. With that said, it, it is well known that uh, particularly the Shia elements of Lebanese society, which there's a big uh, question mark around, particularly in regards to its political and military power under Hezbollah today. Are they as much players in this game that you're speaking of? Because it is known they have been disenfranchised politically and certainly the, the periphery, for the, the connections of the Christian communities with the West, whether it's France or the US or Western capital, and the Sunnis, so to speak, with the Gulf capital. But uh, 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 where can we put in uh, right into this narrative the, the rise of Shia capital and Shia political power? So I would actually uh, oppose this framework you're using. I think it is, it is sectarian in, in some respect, in my view, uh, because again, you know, the, to say that there's such a thing as Shia capital, um, I'm not sure what that exactly means. If you mean that there are certain Shias who are getting wealthier in certain parts of the world, which they are, and bringing in money, we know that the problem with that, uh, now there may, be, there may be, as you know, within, within uh, capitalists, there may be divisions that are national or, or sectarian that are played on or that create prejudice and competition. So that's totally fine. I'm not dismissing that. My point is that's no different from, let's say, potentially uh, uh, British, cap you know, British capitalists all of a sudden becoming pro-Brexit and fighting the French and now then we discover that they actually have French interests and they invest in France. So a lot of also this, the uh, attempt to undermine so-called Shia capital is precisely because in this case, Hezbollah is a, uh, a political actor armed, uh, who's engaged in armed resistance against uh, Israel in this case, you know, and this is why it's being fought. Um, so it's not about a competition within the sectarian system of, um, you know, my, what I'm trying to say is, that this class dynamics, uh, if I understand your, your question correctly. So for example, you said the Gulf is Sunni capital. The, these elements um, may be, may, they may create some tension about who's gonna buy real estate in Beirut, right? We don't want the, these people to come in and buy. I understand that dynamic, that's there. It may be, some people have mentioned, I haven't looked at it, um, who is going to bail out the banks? Uh, will it be the Shia wealthy people who are going to come in and, and take over the banks? So I think this dynamic may be present. But what I'm trying to say is there's something more structural, which is not about the um, uh, market capital. Uh, my, my work is about the institutional deregulatory framework, 
which governs both so-called Shia capital and so-called uh, Sunni capital. It, 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 is, it is about the relationship between state regulation and private capital. And that applies to both. Whoever is going to eventually, it's kind of like when we talk about sectarianism, um, the problem is not if the Maronites or if, if the Shia take over the Maronite as sectarian, as the sectarian class, it's the same problem. It's just, to, which is what Mahdi Amal talks about. Um, so my point is, fine, these compet competitive uh, dynamics exist, but they are not, they are not the fundamental uh, infrastructure that has reproduced the laissez-faire economy of Lebanon, that has created poverty in Lebanon, among the Shia, among the Sunnis, among the, the Maronites. And maybe in one period, there is inflow of money in the South, in the, within the Shia communities because of West Africa. Maybe in 10 years, it will be something else. Rather than get stuck in that, I want people to think about, you have the rich class, so, and they do actually, sorry, I'm gonna make one final point, who owns the banks, for example? It's easy to look at the actual big owners, but you have to look at the stocks. And in my research, I've discovered, for example, in the 50s and 60s, many so-called Lebanese banks were internationally owned. Baidas, everybody says he's Palestinian. The majority of the people's stockholders, they were Lebanese. So this changes the way we think about also, not to reduce them simply to the person who, you know, uh, is on top of the bank or is the kind of founder of the bank. We have to look at uh, who owns the banks. So we need to look deeper about questions of ownership uh, before we decide on that. But that's a, that's a valid point you've raised about some of these dynamics. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna turn to questions on the, uh, on the online now. Uh, it seems there's some questions that are trying to clarify some earlier, some, some basics of the question. Uh, so. We have one here about from Elizabeth Eagert, who writes, thank you. Could you speak a bit more about where and to whom all the money in this Ponzi scheme is gone, starting from the beginning of the scheme? So, so it's gone to two uh, types of people. It's gone to those people who lend the government and have accrued interest. So they've, they've made a lot of the money by accruing interest. So it's a bit cyclical. And it's gone to the uh, whoever was in a position to dispense government money. So the ministries and the projects they've spent it on. Um, so a lot of it is gone there. Now, um, this means that basically the political class on enrichment is comes, it's gone there. It's gone to the political uh, authorities who were in charge from the 90s until today. And it's gone to the owners of the, the, the uh, and these owners also change over time. So one has to calculate and find out, but it's gone to the top bankers and the, the owners of banks and the, the political class. Um, and some of it, of course, is just on paper. So at the end, you just, you just register, you know, interest, but you, you can't get the money out. Gotcha. Uh, one final point, the, the money, this is the thing about banks. People forget this, but, but they know it. The money in the banks are like a pool of water. Whoever puts money turns into a big pool. It's, it's, it's not separated. So they've stole the money. So basically, let me give you a, an example. Let's say you've been making a lot of money on your loans on paper, $2 billion. Today, you, you don't have to, you, you can't give money to everybody, but you still have maybe 20 billion. If you get your money out of the bank to somewhere abroad, you've actually taken out of the big sack that everybody owns. 
Um, so, but yeah, anyways, that's the answer. Okay. Uh, we have a question here from George Khader who asks, are there any analogies of the Lebanese banking system to any other country in the Arab world? And right. When it comes to, yeah, when it comes to, I mean, I've done preliminary research. This requires more research. But when it comes to the regulatory framework, historically, the closest you have used to be Jordan and maybe a little bit Kuwait. Uh, and I think Jordan also, uh, there was a lot of uh, relationship between the Jordanian uh, financial authorities and the Lebanese uh, in the 50s and 60s, because also Jordan, you know, uh, laissez-faire. Um, but a country in which you have this bloated finance, uh, banking system, four times the GDP, a country where you have this kind of entrenched lobby, I am not aware of any um, also, you know, Gulf countries have a different kind of uh, capital structure. And so it may be, it may be, I don't like to use Lebanese exceptionalism at all, but it may be unique. Uh, but again, I, I don't know for sure. Okay. Uh, we've got a question from Charles Turner here who asked an interesting question. He says, from one of your graphs, it looks like global financial crises are good for Lebanon's balance of payments and popular uprisings are bad for it. Would you draw any further conclude? Would you agree with this characterization? I would say, and would you draw any other further conclusions? Yeah. So I, the, the graph I showed only talks about a single global financial crisis. So for us to kind of extrapolate, we need to look at earlier crises and why did money come to Lebanon and not to other countries. Uh, but in the case of the 2007-2008 financial crisis, there was uh, some uh, the Lebanese central banker Riyad Salemi. Uh, put in some measures to attract this capital and protect it. But I think it may be ephemeral. It's, uh, you know, the second point about the uprising, some of this money was f uh, fleeing before the uprising. It's not the uprising that caused the flight. It's actually the financial precarity, the inability to pay the debt, the structure I've talked about that caused much of the flight. But of course, when you have a social upheaval, uh, rich folks, you know, they don't want to undermine um, their money and ordinary people even want the money to, to leave. So the blame here is not on the uprising. The blame is on the government who failed to implement capital controls. So don't think of it as the, the had the government implemented capital controls with all the potential for um, destabilizing uh, or, or sending a negative signal but it would have prevented this flight. And believe it or not, the IMF today is calling on the Lebanese government for capital controls. The international financial institution who believes in free floating exchange rates and who, who support is calling on Lebanon to put capital controls. They haven't. Why? Because the bankers and the politicians who own the money want to continue to be able to siphon off their money abroad while the ordinary citizens are not able to. Okay, thank you. We have another question from Mariana Zabiras, who asks, you mentioned the inaccuracy of statistics around Lebanon's financial system. Can you tell us a bit more about this and how does secrecy about the actual situation and financial data impact on your ability to do your research and Lebanese citizens' ability to monitor what is happening? So the secrecy, first of all, which is the banking secrecy in Lebanon is one of the most stringent. It's even more stringent than places like Switzerland. And uh, this secrecy uh, is summarized in the idea of uh, numerical accounts. So you, only few people, the top managers and banks 
know who owns what. And the Lebanese government is not easy for the central bank to inquire about these uh, numerical accounts. So when it comes to the Lebanese people knowing who owns how much where, so the, for example, if, if we're trying to uh, call on the politicians to uh, divulge how much money they have to understand if they've been publicly corrupt. So this lack of statistic of who owns what because of the uh, secrecy is a problem. That's number one. Aggregate data is not under, doesn't fall under banking secrecy. So when it comes to understanding the uh, solvency of banks, the liquidity of banks, the how much the banks own, this is not aggregate data. Now this data uh, should all be available at the central bank. The last type of data is transfer data. So data of moving money. So we may not be able to know who moved money, but we should be able to know how much money was moved. So in terms of the existing framework, we can know aggregate data, and how, but there's an additional problem. The central bank is not divulging or there is no trust in this data itself. So the aggregate data, which should include detailed data, is not available. This is why they are now calling for a forensic audit. So there's a, there's a call to audit the central bank files. And this audit so far has not materialized. So if we're talking about today's situation, most of us are in the dark, uh, unfortunately. Most of the Lebanese people, there are numbers out there. We've had some official state uh, numbers. So like I told you, the director, Gen when he was resigning, the general director of the uh, Ministry of Public Finance will say a word. So it's cut and paste, you know, and the leaks. There are some leaks, but then the question is, do you trust the leak or you don't trust the leak? So there is a bit of an outage, a serious uh, outage on data uh, today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, we have another question from Adrian Bedas, who asks, who says, a very interesting talk, thank you. He says, what do you think Lebanon's financial system will look like a decade from now, and what can we learn from other countries who have been through similar problems in recent years, such as Greece and its debt crisis or Egypt's devaluation? That's a difficult question because it's, uh, you know, it's projecting onto the future and it's uh, hard for me to make any prediction. What I can tell you is, um, so the question about the financial system itself, this really depends on whether we see a restructuring of the banking system or we don't. Uh, we should have seen it already because <laughs> a crisis like this, you should have had that. If they will do a restructuring, we're going to see um, a reduction in the banking, the size of Lebanese banking system. We're going to see foreign ownership increase. This is a cycle in Lebanese history because I don't think there's internal money that's going to do that. Um, sorry. And so the financial system itself, judging on if that same political class is, is here, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't, isn't, isn't uh, overthrown. We're going to see a uh, maybe a reform minor reform, and we're going to see another crisis, another cycle of crisis. But also Lebanon is going to be a poorer country with time. This is, this is almost certain. The devaluation has already taken place and <coughs> there is an attempt to um, invest in agriculture and industry. This is, hasn't materialized yet. So we have two paths. Either we see uh, more um, migration but again, today's world is very different. 
more money countries are not going to accept we have a global depression. So the, the image is bleak to me unless there is serious political change. But unfortunately, um, we can learn from the Greek crisis. Uh, I hope we don't sell the port the way they did. Um, the debt, I think we can learn from somebody like Yanis Varoufakis, what, not, what Greece should have done in my view. Um, so because from my readings the, in the Greece, according to the IMF, Greece will take, it will take another 10 years before at least there's a semblance of recovery. Um, so again, those are some, some ideas, but I, I really don't know 10 years is a long time. In your previous answer, Hisham, you, you noticed that you, you mentioned that uh, there were demands for a forensic audit of the central bank. Where are those demands coming from? Uh, they are local, but also the IMF has adopted, as if I remember, uh, adopted it. So the audit itself would have just shown us kind of the basics um, of what, what is happening. The forensic audit will actually investigate any criminal activity. So part of it is coming from local groups, civil society, who are calling for a forensic audit. And part of it is coming from uh, international institutions. Yeah. Well, we, as we all know, the, the, the government just collapsed, or I'm sorry, it's not collapsed, excuse me, it just um, stepped down. <coughs> Uh, and uh, now we have, uh, uh, can you explain what is happening right now and uh, who is able to manage the situation? So what we have is a resignation by a government. So now it's a caretaker government mm -hmm. and we have a political stalemate. Uh, this government was meant to address some of the grievances that people were calling for uh, during the uprising. And this is why it was a technocratic government. Uh, yet all these, the majority or maybe all of the people on, gov on the government were associated with particular political factions. Mm -hmm. So this was a facade, a face for the political class because they have become so delegitimated in the eyes of the people. What we have today, the collapse of this government um, has created another crisis, political crisis. Now, the day to day, the government is, has failed to address the majority of the demands of people. So I don't see it's not like the government was you know, looking after things and now we won't have that. Unfortunately, it wasn't even doing its job uh, initially. We are going to see a tussle over the future, how the future government is gonna look. There is a couple of scenarios. We can either see a return to what is called the national unity government, whereby the poles of the different sectarian groups will come back and govern. And this means that it is unlikely we're going to see any radical change. Uh, but this also is going to be an unpopular, uh, potentially unpopular uh, choice. The other is to reinvent the technocratic government in, in some ways um, and try to be more assertive in reform. A third option, which would be to create a government with exceptional powers, which is what some aspects of the uprising is calling for, that is unlikely for the political class to accept because if they do accept it, they've relinquished, they've relegated a lot of their authority and they are the culprits. Uh, and we don't have so far a strong organized uh, movement. So for them, you know, just like the banks, by the way, the banks are dispensing people's money today in Lebanese pounds. As long as the banks are doing that without a serious backlash, why would they stop? Because this is reducing the value of their debt to people. The people put their money in dollars in the banks and now the banks are paying them with liras that are being printed by the central bank for free. So if people are doing that, again, you know, they can keep doing it. Why not? They will create inflation, but from their point of view, my point is here with this government, 
um, the situation has become more internationalized. That's another aspect. So the French are intervening, the Americans are intervening. Um, the game is a little bit now, not out of the hands of the Lebanese political class, but they are having to, to resort to some international uh, support uh, with the absence of an alternative uh, political movement. International support or international involvement in Lebanon is not, nothing new and uh, sort of, you know, uh, improvising off of what you said. Uh, I think there tends to be a kind of critique around Lebanon that the political structure, which, you've uh, which we know about, but also the financial backroom of it, tends to reproduce the problem over and over again. So a government can uh, resign and then when they come for elections another six months later or whenever it is, it, you, you end up seeing the same characters. Now, if I understand correctly from you, unless the emer there is a, the emergence of a new political uh, constellation, so to speak, that would be, uh, that would break the rules of the previous arrangement, so to speak, whatever that means, uh, is it likely that we will see the reproduction of the same uh, crisis again and again with each time another cycle of Ponzi schemes and uh, financial crisis? Um, so firstly, there was one instance in the, in the late 50s when there was a civil war in 1958 when a new government came with the head of the army becoming the president, uh, Fouad Ishab, and he created a government with exceptional powers. And he actually instigated, um, obviously I have my critiques of what he did, but he did major reforms, including setting up the central bank. Um, so today we don't have any, any similar character within the political class and without a government with exceptional powers, I don't see major reform. And this government needs to have some form of legitimacy. For Adish Hab, it was a, a compromise between Egypt, Abdel Nasser and Eisenhower back then. Uh, today, and all, he had the army, he was coming from an army background. Uh, today, many of the groups on the ground, they keep calling for this exceptional government, you know, but they still don't have that legitimacy or social base. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. There are talks today after the explosion, the Beirut explosion, that there will be, but I haven't seen anything substantive. So yes, the, the difference though, Tawfiq, is today, the crisis is so dire and so large scale, um, it's almost as close as questions that were arising in the 80s about Lebanon as a, so I make a distinction between Azmat Nizam, a crisis of a system, or Azmat Kayan, a crisis of an entity, Lebanon itself as a country. And today we are, because also for many of you know that Lebanon historically was created by French colonial decree uh, to undermine the unity of, of the greater Syria project. So my point is 100 years, actually, this is the centenary this year of, of the Lebanese creation of Greater Lebanon, 1920. My point is, this is a, such a dire uh, crisis. Uh, yes, it will either reproduce itself, but even that reproduction is not very, uh, it's not happening smoothly. So, there is, so my point is the political class is facing a dilemma. They are in a, in a crisis, they are. Um, uh, but, which is why we can, we can stay in limbo we can stay in a case of limbo, in a case of uh, international kind of intervention, waiting for something big to happen in the region, uh, maybe a big change in Syria for it to impact Lebanon. Um, so this is the situation we're in. And financially, 
uh, the, the bankers are still kind of with their teeth holding on to not bearing part of the cost, which is crazy. Will they do it eventually? I don't know. Will the money run out and people, you know, overtake them? I don't know. But if they can still print money and, and dispense the, you know, the way they're doing now, we're just going to see hyperinflation and uh, we're going to see impoverishment and the erosion of the middle class and maybe consolidation of the banking system. Uh, but yeah, without this big change politically, uh, you know, it's hard to see. Sam, can you shed some light on, uh, I'm sure there are many people in our audience who uh, are keen to know where Hezbollah stands on this whole situation. Uh, I know uh, Hassan Nasrallah has given some speeches recently about the, the issue, but uh, there tends to be this sort of strange division between, you know, Hezbollah and what it's doing with Israel and regionally and Iran and all that business versus the financial question. Uh, yeah. Can you integrate uh, Hezbollah into the financial crisis? So first I want to say that unfortunately the discussion and debate about Hezbollah has been largely, um, you know, uh, polemical. And there is a division within even the uprising in Lebanon it's either blame everything on Hezbollah or exonerate Hezbollah on every front. This is the debate. And also there are attempts to use the uprising to demand the disarming of Hezbollah, which really in my view has very little to do with the way Hezbollah operates inside Lebanon domestically. And without, without reference to the implications of that in relation to Israel, uh, we can discuss, I mean, you know, there's also Hezbollah is not only now fighting, uh, resisting Israel, it's also uh, supporting the Assad regime, it's present in Syria. So. So my point is, it's important to ask the question you did in a, in a manner that moves us away from these polemics and these attempt to simply either discredit it or to simply exonerate it. So I would argue, first of all, that um, Hezbollah made almost a pact early on in the 90s with the neoliberal Hariri that we focus on resistance and you deal with the economy. And so initially you had Haririism really building this kind of debt, uh, debt creating these in, uh, conditions of, of for further deregulation, laissez-faire. 96 Hezbollah goes into parliament. It's only until 2005 that Hezbollah uh, becomes part of government. Now, uh, ironically, perhaps because of sanctions and because the attempt of, Hezbollah, of the United States to prevent the inflow of money to Hezbollah in Lebanon, Many of the banks that were owned by, going back to your point, uh, maybe Lebanese Shias who were abroad, who made money, uh, they were attacked. A couple of banks were also, uh, you know, uh, uh, sued by the Lebanese, by the American government and closed down the most recent one just before the uprising, uh, Jamal Trust Bank. So the financial infrastructure of Lebanon, Hezbollah to a large extent ceased to use it the same way, which also probably saved its, its assets from destruction when the crisis happened. So from the, because it wasn't, it didn't have a lot of money, at least officially in the banks. So the point is, the problem is that Hezbollah is responsible for the crisis because Hezbollah today as a very powerful government actor has not taken serious measures and decisions to actually uh, push for serious reform. This is where we can blame Hezbollah like any other big powerful political party. We ca they cannot simply say it's, it's nothing to do with us. You're in government, you vote in parliament, you, you have a responsibility in that respect. But that's where the responsibility lies. They are not, they don't have the uh, 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 intellectual, you know, 
their cadres, they're very adept, very good at uh, sectarian um, uh, politics. They're good at resistance, etc., fighting. But they really, you know, you see from their economic, they don't have a serious economic plan. Nasrallah, uh, as you, before this uh, speech, he said, we're not interested in changing the Lebanese economic system. I mean, he, he's, not, this is, he's not vested in there. But I would also say to people, I mean, you give it too much credit by constantly, I mean, push for this change to create a political movement around you, not around somebody in power. Don't expect this political class to actually provide you with the uh, solutions. So the role of Hezbollah in the financial system in that respect, in building it and creating it and regulating it is minimal, but because of its role in um, attracting money for, to fund its operations and et cetera, uh, it's part of the system the, the, you know, the dollar is a something else. So they have parallel networks, obviously. They're not as invested. They're in, only invested in so much as their uh, supporters and constituencies have millions of dollars in the banks. So yes, in that respect, you know, they do. Uh, but they're not, they're not part of the old structure or they haven't, they, they haven't been involved in it the same way they are involved in the political uh, institutions. Well, we're, we're coming up on an hour and 10 minutes. I guess I'll ask one more question from online. Uh, this one coming from Andrew Patrick. Perhaps you've already touched on elements of this, but uh, he asks, uh, with all of the terrible news coming out of Lebanon, which, is deep, which deeply pains us all, could you give us your take on a best case scenario for Lebanon's <coughs> future in terms of the finance and governance? I think the best case scenario would be for the, um, there would be a, a, um, uh, a pact, a new pact among the political movements that have been spearheading the uprising, mm -hmm. whereby they create a united front that uh, becomes involved in the creation of a government with exceptional powers. But before they call for that, if this explosion, if there's a silver, if there's ever a silver lining to this, it has to be a wake up call. This is my point. People keep complaining that the government is in power for 11 months, what have you done? The uprising has also been going for 11 months or more, maybe less, whatever, since October, the same time period. And I understand the difficulties, but also to be fair to Lebanon, unlike other Arab countries, most of these uh, uh, activists, unlike in maybe in Syria or Egypt, you're not gonna disappear overnight. They, they use, everybody swears at everybody on, on public news. My point is the, what is preventing this unity is not simply the clampdown by the government. It is the lack of willingness by many of these groups to unite under a single uh, set of demands and to create a national front. My hope is this thing will happen soon and it will create at least for people a credible leadership, collective leadership that will push for serious reforms uh, and hopefully eventually you know, at least if you don't change the sectarian system, you impose uh, reforms on the banks and we start seeing some money coming in. That's the best scenario I can, I can see, but it requires this kind of political uh, decision and, and courage um, to, to do. Okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, we obviously wish Lebanon uh, well, as well as all the social political actors who might be able to push that forward as a as a project, because watching what happens in Lebanon today is truly, you know, tragic to say the least. Um, but uh, 
we, we wish Lebanon well from Jerusalem here, and I'm sure many people out there in our audience uh, do the same. So thank you. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, our uh, discussant today, Dr. Uh, Hisham Safiyeddin. Uh, this event today is coming to you from Jerusalem, from the Council for British Research in the Levant. Please check out our uh, webpage at cbrl.ac.uk, where you will be able to find a recording of this talk and as in any other future webinars that we will be having. The next one coming up is on the 26th of August uh, with uh, Dr. Gabriel Varchese looking at his new book on Palestinian theater in the West Bank. This event, as I said, has come to you from East Jerusalem, from the Council for British Research in the Levant, but also from East Jerusalem's educational bookshop. Please support uh, your local bookshops, especially in times of COVID. Uh, you can get, grab a copy of Dr. Hisham's book, Banking on the State, at uh, the Educational Bookshop. Uh, check it out uh, locally or online. Grab yourself a copy. And uh, thank you for attending today. All the best. <laughs>